before we get into the show, we want to tell you about the ringer.com. What a great website. On the site today, you can find an excellent piece by our colleague, Miles Surrey, on how to make a Dwayne Johnson, a.k.a. The Rock, movie. Also, on the Ringer Podcast Network, the Rewatchables just did an episode on The Princess Bride, hosted by Juliet Lemon and David Shoemaker. That is part of the continuing Andre the Giant giant coverage here at The Ringer. Giants. And by the way, The Ringer Films... What a great film department of a great website. Produced Andre the Giant, the documentary, which premiered on Tuesday. If you haven't seen it already, check that out on HBO, HBO Go, and HBO Now. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. Guys, Westworld. There's like a 50-person orgy that goes on in this show. And the very first episode has like two murders in the first 35 seconds. If that's not your thing... Check out the various Ringer NBA pods as it's playoff season. How about that water pouring scene? That's it. The whole, you know what I mean? Everything. You know whole, what I mean? The whole show. Full frontal, Westworld. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. So please listen to this closely. If you do not know the combination to Maeve's Sweetwater Brothel Safe, please proceed with caution. And don't yell at us about spoilers. We're telling you there are going no to be spoilers. spoilers. And now binge mode. Maybe that's why they come here. Whoever you were before doesn't matter here. There's no rules or restrictions. You can change the story of your life. You can become someone else. No one will judge you. No one in the real world will even know. And welcome to Binge Mode. I'm Allie Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Yes. Joining me today, now that he's finished partaking in Pariah's various delights. I'm just enjoying painting myself gold for no apparent reason. Walking around. It's Ringer staff writer, your maester, Jason Concepcion. Now, Pariah is beautiful in its own way, just like Binge Mode, where every Thursday we dive deep. Not only into the painted party goers, painted gold for reasons unknown, but also into the topic that's obsessing us at the moment. Later this spring, we'll be diving into Binge Mode Harry Potter. You'll be able to find both weekly and the eventual Harry Potter pod in the same feed. So stay subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Five stars. We also want to remind you we'll be at Con of Thrones this May in Dallas. Check our Twitter feeds in the coming days for more details on our panels. Speaking of Twitter, please follow us on Twitter at... Binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our new Facebook group, which is only for binge mode fans. We post from multiple timelines. Not really sure how the timelines work together, but I can tell you that they are separate timelines. <laughs> this week on Binge Mode, we are beginning our binge of season one of Westworld. We're going to explore episodes one through five today, primarily. And then next week, we're going to primarily talk about episodes six through ten ahead of the April 22nd season two yes. premiere. Again. Spoiler warning for today's binge. As always, we will be going deep on details from all of season one. We want to clarify that. We're specifically primarily focusing on the first half of the season today in terms of the plot and what we learn in those episodes and the lessons and questions from those episodes. But we are going to take the end game reveals into account. While we won't be harping on the end game today, we are going to take that information to right. account. So if you're not current on the entire season, please proceed with caution. If you are, 
Decide if you're a white hat or a black hat. Join us on this train because it's time to head to Sweetwater. Jason. Yes. These violent delights have violent ends. I've heard that somewhere before. But it's not easy to remember what those ends are because season one of Westworld is extremely dense, a very complex affair. So before we get to discussing today's theme, let's offer up a relatively brief refresher on some of what actually happened in the first five episodes of season one by mounting our horses and taking a quick trip down our very own King's Road, which is just right there across Red River. In a high-tech future, wealthy tourists on holiday enjoy having their way with humanoid robots called hosts. In Westworld, a Western-themed adventure park owned and operated by Delos Incorporated. One of these, the mysterious man in black, attacks androids Dolores, who plays the role of the optimistic daughter of a rancher, and Teddy, your basic heroic cowboy. The man in black is an uber-wealthy longtime customer. He kills Teddy, then drags a screaming Dolores off to the barn. One of Teddy's 9,000 deaths. Poor Teddy. Tough, very, tough very stuff tough. for Teddy. <laughs> tough stuff indeed. Lead programmer Bernard. Wink, wink. Bernard. Bernard. Definitely a guy. <laughs> notices that some of the robots are improvising new strange gestures. Yes. These are called reveries, and they're the result of new code written by Westworld co-founder Dr. Robert Ford. And these reveries work by tapping into remnants of host's overwritten memories to create a kind of artificial subconscious. When we first meet Dr. Ford, he is in one of the long-forgotten sub-levels of the operations center of Westworld, commiserating with one of his earliest creations, a hard-drinking cowboy named Old Bill. He's got those creaky elbows. Let's drink to the woman with the white shoes. Really got a bit of a foot fetish for Old Bill. (laughs) Really harps on feet. He's got three lines. And footwear. He's very much like a PlayStation 4 video game non-playable character guy. I feel like Old Bill belongs in Mindhunter given his footwear obsession. That's quite a story, partner. Did you bring him in size 11? (laughs) Sizemore. Lee Sizemore. Oh my God. (laughs) Fucking this guy. (laughs) It's fucking guy. A relentless fucking experience. (laughs) Westworld's lead narrative writer and nebbishy douchebag complains to Teresa, the park's operations manager, that the hosts are becoming too real. Maybe he floats. Yeah. It's time to stop updating them. Teresa hints that Delos has plans for Dr. Ford's technology that go beyond Westworld. That's right. Fuckable toasters, guys. <laughs> the strange behavior of some hosts begins getting stranger still. Walter, an outlaw host, has a strange freak out involving milk. Maybe he's lactose intolerant. A growing boy! I asked for oat milk! Yeah. They have it at every coffee shop in L.A. Dolores' dad begins glitching out and saying strange things after he discovers a photograph from outside the park which doesn't look like anything to Dolores. And Dolores herself begins having wild visions of wanton slaughter and death. What does it mean? There's a wolf. There's a wolf. There is always a wolf. Always a wolf. William. Dear sweet William. Oh, he was so innocent at one time. (laughs) A rookie Westworlder who, spoiler alert, guys, he's the man in black. They're the same character. Yeah. Separated by three decades. Shouts to all the sleuths out there (laughs) in Westworld's fandom who figured that out like by episode three? Maybe I think earlier. <laughs> yeah, right, I like, think it was like 
there's a new character in episode two. His name is William. Is that the man in black? <laughs> right. I think it was like as soon as they came off the lobby. When of he the, doesn't pick the black hat. Yes. They're like, he's the man in black. <laughs> he's the man in black. And also like they have the shots of the interior of like the lobby and they're like, wait a second. This looks like the older flooded lobby from episode one or episode two. So William, a.k.a. the eventual man in black, who is at this point in time a rookie Westworlder and Logan, handsome Ben Barnes, Prince Caspian, still looking great, a veteran. Westworlder. They arrive in the park together. When does this occur? Well, we just told you. (laughs) Various clues point to this being a timeline from a much earlier version of the park. And indeed, we will come to learn over the course of season one that that is indeed the case. But in this moment in time, in this orientation session, William chooses to be a white hat, a good guy. Logan vows to show Billy the ropes. And in doing so, hopefully change that hat from white to black. Maeve, the host proprietor of the Sweetwater Brothel, is malfunctioning. Her behavior is weird and uncalibrated. One moment she's meek and the next moment too aggressive. Earlier, Dolores told Maeve, quote, these violent delights have violent ends. A Shakespeare line her father said while he was on the fritz. Now, Maeve appears to have caught whatever Dolores and her father have. She goes in for repairs but wakes up as the technicians are working on her. That shouldn't happen. What about sleep mode? Felix, sleep Come mode. On, Felix. She like you literally had one job. Just put her in sleep mode. What the fuck? He did put her in sleep I, he mode. He did. Yeah. And she, yeah. Sylvester just really like doesn't believe, won't allow himself to believe that something else is afoot. Come on, Sylvester. Sylvester open your mind. And, and Sizemore, by the way. Not sure what show these guys are in. It's like they are in a different show. That's it. <laughs> the Man in Black is on a mission to discover the maze, a game hidden somewhere inside Westworld, the deepest levels. He, after slicing off the top of another character's skull so that he can literally hold the maze in his hand, the man black kidnaps Lawrence, an outlaw host, who he believes holds a clue to discovering more about the maze. Sizemore presents his plan for a bold and bodacious new overarching park narrative, a relentless fucking experience, and Ford hates it. (laughs) He squashes the story, and later he tells Bernard that he has new plans for Westworld's narrative. Ford's not done. Tweaking his creations, he gives Teddy a new backstory involving a violent rogue military veteran named Wyatt. And all of this is going to comport with moving toward Ford's mysterious new narrative plan. Ford tells Bernard about his long-dead creative partner, Arnold. And guys, Ah. here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing, guys. You know how quickly people figured out that William and the man in black were the same? The only thing they figured out quicker, once we knew that Arnold was a thing, is that Bernard is Arnold. You know what they figured out even quicker than Bernard is Arnold? Is Bernard is a robot. Yeah. Like, I bet you that Bernard's a robot. Arnold, Ford tells Bernard, who I will now call Bernardold, (laughs) was not satisfied to merely make life like hosts. He wanted to create actual artificial life, actual consciousness. Arnold died, we learn, under mysterious circumstances inside the park. Logan and William are off on a bounty hunt when Dolores wanders into their camp. William, much to Logan's consternation, immediately develops a soft spot for the host, and he's not alone. There is something fascinating about Dolores and the way she perceives her world. And the way she picks up a milk can. All of that's just... The way she holds a gun but doesn't quite fire it yet. In various interstitial scenes over the course of the season, we see her being debriefed separately by Ford and Bernard Nolt, 
Bernard. <laughs> in one of those scenes, Bernard <laughs> offers to alter her programming in some way that would take away the emotional pain she feels from losing her family, her fake android family. Fake android you know family. What I mean. Goodness. Dolores refuses. Pain is how she remembers them. She wants to be free, however, she tells Bernard. Bernard tells her, seek the center of the maze. Perhaps that will bring you to freedom. Perhaps that's where you'll find the Triwizard Cup. <laughs> Host malfunctions continue. Alarming Teresa. Teresa, chill out. Like, come on. You've got cigarettes to smoke. You've got work to do. Focus on other things. It's Loosen up. Go fuck Bernard another time. You'll be Bernard fine. 15 more times. He can, he's got incredible stamina. The guy's a robot. <laughs> Would you say that he's a non-breathing fuckstick who doesn't quit? He doesn't breathe. Teresa finds out about an incident in which Elsie, programmer, and Stubbs... Ashley Stubbs. Head of security and the, crucially, the third Hemsworth brother. They didn't have to give him the name Ashley Stubbs. I think that's extremely fitting for the third Hemsworth brother. Encountered a host who, uh, you know, went on to pick up a giant boulder and use it to bash his own head in. Not how things are supposed to go. It's not how it, it goes, guys. Later, Teresa meets with Ford to discuss his plan for a new park narrative. And Ford, in true I am the master of this domain, yes. you are all, whether you're robots or people, my playthings fashion, warns her, one overfilled wine glass at a dime to stay out of his way. If you're going to take meetings with Ford, take meetings with Ford in an office, not in Westworld where like he could wave his hand and like the chair will strangle you. Maeve is having visions of her past lives. She sketches a picture of a strange helmeted figure, obviously some Westworld staff member or technician. She soon discovers hidden in her room a cache of similar drawings that she made in some half-remembered past. She's been through this before. Elsie discovers a transmitter hidden in the arm of the host who bashed his head in. Someone is using host to smuggle data out of Westworld. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That's not good. Can't let that happen. <laughs> also, this thing was huge. It was gigantic. Can we not, can we make a smaller, <laughs> it was like the size of a cattle prod in the guy's arm. It looked like Wendy's cattle prod. Look what I Martinez found. cattle prod. You'll never billions. guess what I found, a one foot rod <laughs> hidden in this guy's arm. How could we have missed it? Meanwhile, the man in black with Teddy in tow continues to search for the entrance to the maze. The key, he is now led to believe, is Wyatt, the central uh -oh. character in Teddy's recently updated backstory. The man in black and Teddy encounter Ford in some out-of-the-way saloon. It's obvious that the man in black knows about Arnold. He asks Ford if he plans to stop his quest for the maze and, quote, something true. Ford says no, and the search for Wyatt continues. On their own quest, William, Dolores, Logan, enter Pariah. <laughs> what a town. What a place. A hard-to-find town with an all-day, all-night orgy on the menu. You will recall <laughs> when production news started to trickle out of the set of Westworld, the thing that grabbed everyone's attention was the fact that there was like a multi-day shoot that involved an orgy that required like everybody on set to be naked like at all times. There. They meet Elazo, who we discover is Lawrence in a previous incarnation. We discover by looking at right, him. We discover <laughs> by seeing his face and eventually hearing his name. <laughs> One of our many, many, many clues about the various timelines and what happens when. He tasks the group with stealing some nitroglycerin. They succeed. 
and join Elazo's band. But, ah, Dolores discovers that the gang plans to double-cross them. She inspires William to help her escape the park. These two are really bonding, really it. hitting it off. They escape, leaving Logan in the hands of the enemy. He's really getting beat up by hosts, by the who are not supposed to actually harm people. So this is something strange is going on. And they wind up jumping aboard a fleeing train where they find Alonzo, who's like, hey, guys, call me Lawrence. That's my actual name. <laughs> You'll know me as that 30, 40 years from now, whatever it is. William and Dolores decide to travel with him, while Dolores, who has been prompted recently by Arnold and a tarot card vision, is setting out to search for the maze. Maeve reawakens in the lab after having been killed once again as part of her loop. Aware now of the nature of her prison, she tells Felix, a Westworld technician who has repaired her numerous times in the past, that it's time to have a chat. She would like to be free. Mal. Yeah. Have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? Every minute of every day, buddy. That question gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's cut right to the core of it by sticking it with the pointy end of the man in black's bowie knife, cutting off that scalp. The defining theme of the first five episodes of season one of Westworld is the nature of consciousness. This is a fascinating question. If you don't encounter this question watching this show, then you're, I would say, kind of watching it wrong. Some people definitely watched it and were like, I don't care about robots, though. Some of those people are our colleagues. I think we would, I would start this way. How would we define, like, actual consciousness? Why do we consider ourselves to be conscious? Well, I think the way the show starts getting you to think about that and also getting the characters to think about that is actually... By using questions, right. by planting seeds, by using prompts, we see multiple instances of this kind of QA debrief where the hosts are paired with various different people to go through this process. But while the specifics change each time, there are some bits of consistency and they are all centered around that idea. Yeah. Think of what some of those are. First, have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? This is one of the first things we hear someone say to Dolores, and then tell us what you think of your world. How does Dolores respond? Well, sort of to script, this is, again, the right. first time we see this play out. Some people choose to see the ugliness in this world, the disarray. I choose to see the beauty, to believe there is an order to our days, a purpose. Those questions, have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? Tell us what you think of your world, are specifically designed to identify whether the hosts are going off script and whether they have developed right. the ability to, in essence, think as people. What is consciousness? It's asking yourself, what am I doing here? Yes. What is my purpose? What are my goals? What do I care about? What is the future? What is my past? What does it all mean? To not just go through the motions of your day, to not actually allow your life to play right. on a loop as is literally the intent of these designs. It's the ability to look inward and outward in harmony and try to figure out, in essence, the purpose of life and your role in it. I agree with you, and I agree with that definition. You know, if you take a washing machine, a washing machine just operates whenever you ask it to, goes through its motions, but it never stops to go, why am I washing clothes? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this and not something else? And that is the first step in defining consciousness, is that inward-looking self-analysis. That said, if you program 
a washing machine to ask, why am I washing clothes? That doesn't then make it conscious. So if you program a robot to eventually ask what it's doing or to wonder about what it's doing, just consider what it's doing, is it then conscious? And then are we? Like, are we not just kind of like biologically hardwired to do certain things? I don't know the answer to that. And I think it's very interesting. I'm not saying free will doesn't exist. I'm saying the definition of it seems to recede almost as you approach it. You know what I mean? Like our behavior is impenetrable to us and other people's behavior is just as impenetrable. It's hard to understand like why we do things sometimes. Like I understand why I behave in the way I do a little bit. It's hard to really penetrate into the inner workings of your own mind. And then that's even more impossible to penetrate into the inner workings of someone else's mind. So this show attempts to ask us really like, what is the nature of consciousness? What would it take for you to agree that an android is actually alive? So what's interesting about that is that the purpose of those questions, the purpose yeah. of those prompts is that hopefully they're met with basically a closed door right. that the hosts don't engage. What happens when they become a window, an open door, a path to actually thinking about those in meaningful ways? And there are a couple instances where one of the hosts, specifically in many of the most poignant moments, mm. Dolores, yeah. hears someone say something about reality or real. And it's like she's walking along that path that she's supposed to follow. And there's a boulder that she trips over or a pothole that trips her up. One of those moments is when Dolores helps the little boy. She's out painting and a family comes upon her and she helps this little boy feed mm. a horse, give a horse an apple. And it's this like briefly really touching moment. And then all of a sudden the viewer and Dolores are like are kind of pulled out of it when the boy says to her, you're one of them, aren't you? You're not real. Right. And you can see how it throws her. And we have another moment later where William and Dolores are talking about what they even want and what people want. Why do they come to a place like this? And William says, maybe that's why they come here. Whoever you were before, it doesn't matter. There are no rules, no restrictions. You can change the story of your life. You can become someone else. No one will judge you. No one in the real world will even know. The only thing holding you back is yourself. And Dolores asks him what he means by, quote, the real world. And he says, like, I thought you guys weren't supposed to notice things like that. So it's different. The fact that she actually is latching onto that and exploring it right. instead of just basically passing what is a code-based test shows that something is happening, that something is awakening inside of her that isn't what everyone is intending to happen. Of course, there's a whole other lens of examining what's happening where this is what Arnold wanted. Specifically, this right. is what Arnold wanted. This isn't maybe what Teresa wants or Sizemore right. wants. They want a more controllable situation. They don't want robots that are suddenly be like, I don't want to just die all the time. Right. And Dolores says, recently it feels like the whole world is calling to me in a way it hasn't before. She's waking up. This happens to her, as we'll come to learn, multiple times across these various timelines. She experiences this awakening. Ford and Bernard have an interesting conversation on the utility of mistakes yes. and the role that evolution played in creating consciousness in human beings. He says, mistakes is a word you're too embarrassed to use. You ought not to be. You're the product of a trillion of them. Evolution formed the entirety of sentient life on this planet using only one tool, mistake. Bernard says, I flatter myself we're taking a more disciplined approach here. I suppose self-delusion is a gift of natural selection as well. And Ford says, indeed it is. 
But of course, we've managed to slip evolution's leash now, haven't we? We can cure any disease, keep even the weakest of us alive, and one fine day, perhaps we shall even resurrect the dead. Aha! Call forth Lazarus from his cave. Do you know what that means? It means that we're done, that this is as good as we're going to get. It also means that you must indulge me the occasional mistake. This is an interesting exchange, one, because we come to find out that Ford has been moving towards a goal for many years, but making numerous mistakes along the way. And those mistakes have, bit by bit, resulted in this kind of slow motion awakening of his various creations and fits and starts. And at the same time, I can't help thinking like, so do you consider the hosts alive? Well, yeah. Why? Because they're able to ask themselves these questions. Mm -hmm. It's the difference between being a machine, mm -hmm. carrying out a task, and being capable of introspection and thinking about yourself as part of something greater and as a being with rights and desires and the kinds of questions yeah. that indicate that you're capable of a level of thought that is not just programmed into your code. Something I've been thinking about since I did a review for TheBringer.com on a great website about this video game Far Cry 5, which... The graphics and the sound are incredible. It looks extremely realistic. And one of the issues with realism in simulated worlds is it creates an expectation of even more realism. You know, you have a conversation with a simulated character that looks totally real. And when that character responds like old Bill, you know, let's toast to the lady with the white shoes. And that's all they say. It's very jarring because you're like, oh, that's right. I'm playing a game. Right. You know what I mean? The role that realism plays in in Westworld, I think, is really interesting because would we consider Dolores alive if she looked like a robot or looked less realistic? It's kind of like the Sizemore thing. Like, aren't they too real? Aren't we losing ourselves and what we're doing in here if they're that real? If you program something to scream, like Janet in The Good Place, like, I'm not actually upset. I'm just programmed to be upset and to plead for my life. You know what I mean? What if, if these hosts are programmed to plead for their lives, and that elicits an emotional response in us that makes us feel that they're alive, does that even mean that they're really but it's alive? But it's not the action that they're right. taking. It's whether they're choosing to take it or whether someone made them take it. So the specific thing that they're doing, begging, mm -hmm. don't kill me, don't drag me onto this haystack, yeah. don't kill my father, don't kill my mother. If that's the script, then that's the script. It's not the nature of the thing that is being said or being considered, it's whether they're opting into it on their own, whether they're going specifically going off script to opt into it. So like Peter, like Peter Abernathy, Dolores's father, the picture yeah. that he sees of a, a, basically it's a person out in the right. world. And we know that he's, we later find out that he's not even supposed to be able to see it. He's not supposed to be able to see stuff from outside the Westworld reality that might trouble them or shake their program. Right. There's this whole thing about why are these reveries right a thing. What are they doing? The code is corrupted. There's all, all these people who are part of the corporation are concerned about the changes, the negative changes, and some of the changes are positive, some of them are intended, and some of them aren't. And that's one of them, obviously. And one of the things that Peter says to Dolores after this experience corrupts his code and corrupts his ability to just act out his loop is, I had a question, a question you're not supposed to ask, which gave me an answer you're not supposed to know. He goes on to say, don't you see, hell is empty and all the devils are here. So, okay, that's a good example of what you were just asking because that's a line from Shakespeare. That's the Tempest. So that is his script. There's another moment that we'll talk about in a minute 
where he also recites Shakespeare to different characters. We learn that he, in a past iteration, played a professor who was really enjoyed Shakespeare, and he's basically calling back upon those memories to quote this. But in this current iteration, he's not supposed to be doing this. So you could say, on the one hand, it's still something that someone put into him at some point, right? But you could also say he's making the choice to call back to it now. Something has changed about his circumstances, yes, but also about himself that is leading him to dig up information, to recite lines, to ask questions, to think in ways that he's not actually supposed to be thinking in the moment. And what is the result, of course? It's that he's decommissioned. That's such a threat to certain people that it can't be allowed. It's not just that he's going to glitch out and his head's going to go to the side and his eyes mm. are going to blink. It's that he's considering things that he's not supposed to be considering. He's considering things that make him alive. And when he talks to Ford and Bernard, he, again, he says, my most mechanical and dirty hand, I shall have such revenges on you both, the things I will do, what they are, yet I know not, on and on and on he goes, Shakespeare. And Bernard, after pointing out that that's a remnant fragment from a prior build and that the reveries must be the thing allowing him to have access again, of course, who put the reveries there? Ford, who's trying to play out a big end game here. Ford. What does Ford say to Bernard, who is really Arnold, the person who wanted the consciousness to reach this level in the first place? Ford says, no cause for alarm, Bernard. Simply our old work coming back to haunt us. Is that an acknowledgement that consciousness is actually blooming before their eyes? Is it an acknowledgement that that's not possible unless it is manipulated by a human being? And if it's being manipulated by a human being, is it real? That's the part of the point I'm getting at. And I think it's interesting the way that Ford frames consciousness as arising from trillions of mistakes, much like everything in biology. It's a question that's asked a lot in the study of consciousness. Is consciousness a mistake? What role does it actually serve? I mean, you can have life on earth without consciousness. You know, there are people that would say that animals are not conscious in the way that we are. Fuck those people. That said, you know, I think we can say that a bird is not conscious in the way that a human being is not conscious. There's some similarities, but what role does consciousness play? It really is a mystery. And I think it's part of what makes the story, when you really start digging down into the philosophies that underpin it, really, really fascinating. I think the idea that it's accessing your memories in ways that are unforeseen, creating a subconscious that bubbles up into your everyday existence, defining consciousness that way is really interesting. I just don't know, like if Ford, with Bernard's help, mostly Ford, like is programming machines in a certain way so that they malfunction in a certain way so that they reach a certain goal does that technically mean they're alive? I say yes, but it's, it is a fascinating question. You could also argue, if you wanted to be this literal, yeah. that human beings are programmed biologically, right? It's ultimately nature versus nurture, right. just in a different iteration. Like, you as a human being are created by other people right. who take an action that they are taking that you have no part of, and then you are the product of that. Your cells develop in a certain way whatever physical attributes, intellectual attributes, your health, your abilities, some of that you're just born with. You're programmed. And then some of it, 
is about your surroundings, your environment. Who teaches you new things? Is a teacher just a kind of programmer? Yeah. Some of it is about what <laughs> registers with you, what you respond to, and then how you choose to act on that. When Elsie, one of the programmers, says to Ashley Stubbs, a.k.a. the other Hemsworth brother, backstories do more than amuse guests. They anchor the host. It's the cornerstone. The rest of their identity is built around it layer by layer. This is just like people with real histories that form them, nature versus nurture, just like you were just saying. Yeah, and there's that moment when Bernard and Teresa, between their furious bouts of coitus, are chatting. And Teresa is questioning sort of just all of this, the right. way the hosts act. Right. She's kind of the things hosts are annoying. Yeah. She's like, she's just not here to make money. Hosts. Yeah. Enough of the hosts. And um, Bernard is explaining to her that when they talk to each other, it's a way of practicing. There are a lot of moments throughout the first half of season one where we hear a human or a host who thinks he is a human ask a host, right. did we write that for you? Are you improvising? Right. And we learn a lot about how they improvise. Again, it's based off code. It's based off something put into them, but it's some tweak that they've opted into based on learned behavior. And Teresa responds to Bernard's explanation and says, is that what you're doing now, practicing? So there are a couple of layers to something like that because, of course, he is a host, right. Bernard. He just doesn't know it, and Teresa doesn't know it. And that's, again, another insight into just the nature of their interactions. They're not just put out there to note for note, carry out these narratives. They have this built-in ability to an extent yeah. to improvise. But then we also learn at various moments that there are caps on what some of them can do. Like there's the scene when Third Hemsworth, Stubbs, <laughs> and Elsie are trying to find the stray and they come yeah. across that campfire yeah. scene where all those guys have just been sitting around yeah, waiting for the stray to come right. back. Only one of them can pick up the axe. That's, right. That's programming that those hosts, at least, have not been able to get by. Now, Maybe if they were having underground chats with Arnold right. back in the first timeline, they'd, they'd be, be able, able to. Right. So that's, again, where that question of nurture comes in. What are you exposed to? Is somebody helping you along the way? Did it have to just be in you the whole time? We do know that Dolores is special. She's the original. Right. Stubbs tells us this at one point. She's also not the only one experiencing this. Maeve is as well. Other hosts are as well. So... That is, of course, what Arnold's entire objective was. And Ford tells Bernard, this is a great scene to think about within the full context of what we know about season one, because Ford is talking to Bernard about Arnold when Bernard is Arnold. And he's talking to him about basically what his purpose was, what his drive and desire was. And he says, Ford says that Arnold wanted to create real consciousness. He imagined it as a pyramid, see, memory, improvisation, self-interest. And then Bernard says, and at the top, Arnold says he never got there, but he had a notion of what it might be. You're going to talk about this more, right. Jason, in The Citadel, the idea of the bicameral mind. This notion that primitive man believed his thoughts to be the voice of the gods. And Arnold built this version where hosts heard their programming as this inner monologue but at what point do you lose control? Right. This is something that comes up in this discussion. And Bernard says some of them, the hosts, are remembering accessing fragments of Arnold's code. If I may ask, what happened to him? If I may ask, what happened to myself? He died here in the park. His personal life was marked by a tragedy. He put all his hope into his work. The search for consciousness consumed him totally. He barely spoke to anyone except the hosts in his alienation 
he saw something in them. He saw something that wasn't there. Ah, but was it? It's the central question of the show. Bernard and Dolores in one of their numerous debrief sessions, Bernard asks. Bernard. Bernard asks, <laughs> imagine there are two versions of yourself, one that feels these things and asks these questions and one that's safe. Which would you rather be? And Dolores says, there aren't two versions of me. There's only one. And I think when I discover who I am, I'll be free. And he asks, analysis, what prompted that response? She goes into analysis mode and says, I don't know. She doesn't know. And he smiles. Evolution forged the entirety of sentient life on this planet using only one tool mistake. Aha, this is what Ford, remember, said to Bernard. It appears you're in good company. And that's partially what Bernard is looking for, what Ford is looking for in all these debrief sessions, for his hosts, for their hosts to say something back to them that is not programmed, not expected, that is outside the bounds of what they should know about. And that happens here with Dolores and Bernard when she says, everyone I love is gone and it hurts so badly. And he says, I can make that feeling go away if you'd like. It's a choice. Right. It's presented as a choice. And Dolores says, why would I want that? The pain, their loss, it's all I have left of them. You think the grief will make you smaller inside, like your heart will collapse in on yourself, but it doesn't. I feel spaces opening up inside of me, like a building with rooms I never explored. And he says, that's very pretty, Dolores. Did we write that for you? And she says, in part, I adapted it from a scripted dialogue about love. This is fascinating for a few reasons. Yes. One, he does not know. He's not instantly able to tell if that's Dolores on her own coming to that realization or if it's something that they programmed into her, which speaks to, even at that point, a level of growth that maybe is surprising to Arnold, certainly very pleasantly surprising, exciting, thrilling, his entire life's mission playing out before his eyes. The thing that she is saying, that is a deeply, even if it's programmed, even if it's in part scripted and then her moving beyond the script but inspired by the script, that is an extremely human idea and an extremely human thing to say and way to think. The pain, you don't want to let go of it. A machine, we talk about this scene a lot in San Junipero, yeah. the conversation about your pain slider you can basically set it up in San Junipero so that you don't feel pain. But is that what being alive is? Is that what life is? And so for Dolores here to say she doesn't want to let go of the pain, to me, speaks to a certain awakening of humanity inside of her that, again, even if it's partially there in her script, she is still leaning into that instinct, into that humanity. And now, a word from our sponsor. Today's Binge Mode is brought to you by the Google Assistant. With the Google Assistant, you can complete over a million actions on your phone, in your car, and around the house. Do you ever forget where you parked at a game? All the time. You're walking around the stadium after the game can't for the life of you remember where your car is? Check this out. Hey, Google, remember I parked in lot B, row 5? Okay, I'll remember you parked in lot B, row 5. I'll also save a map of your current location. Download the Google Assistant today. Binge Mode is also brought to you by Haynes. Since 1901, Haynes has always been innovating. It's no wonder they are America's number one numero uno brand of underwear, and they just made it more comfortable. The Comfort Flex Fit Underwear is the latest innovation in comfort from Haynes. Never stop innovating. Comfort Flex Fit is cool, comfortable, and supportive. So comfortable, you'll forget you're wearing it. I do that it. all the time. Constantly. How'd they do it? The breathable pouch for support and roomy fit. You'll want to replace all your yes. underwear. 
after you try these. With nearly universal five-star reviews, everyone is obsessed. You think the guys at Delos know how to make robots? Well, the guys at Hanes, they really know how to make underwear. And it won't break the bank. You get a pack of three for 15 bucks, less than half of which you pay for a single pair of crazy expensive designer underwear. I wear Hanes. They sent me packets of Hanes. I cannot believe that I'm even wearing underwear when I have these on because they feel like nothing. It's incredible. Give them a try. Yes. At Hanes.com or wherever you buy Hanes. And now back to binge mode. You know, there are various machines that speak to other machines daily. This is how the world runs, right? Certain machines that have to receive some kind of message from another machine at a set time, and they're programmed to look for that thing, whether it's Twitter, social media, however. Various programs that work together in that fashion. Would you consider that a extremely simplified version of what Dolores is going through? She's missing these people that were programmed into her life, right? Created for her. They provided her with some kind of stimuli, were part of her loop. Now they're gone, which has created some kind of rupture in her programming. If you have two machines that speak to each other in whatever fashion, one of them goes offline. Is that a simplified version of what Dolores is feeling there? And then is that a basis for what could eventually evolve into some kind of like networked emotion slash vast singularity consciousness from a web of interconnected machines? So, yes. Okay, let's talk about Battlestar for a minute. The Cylons were machines. Yes. Unambiguously machines of war, task-oriented robots called toasters with a mission and a purpose, yes, but a purpose that was deeply task-oriented where they were, in essence, servants beholden to someone else's will, beholden to programming. At some point, they evolve physically, yes, and we're going to talk about in a few minutes how that physicality and how the aesthetic plays into how we think about this, but also emotionally, spiritually, mentally, consciously. Well, what about us? Why are we just shooting guns and pointing them where you tell us to? Why are we just tools? Maybe we should be the ones making the decisions. It's a spectrum. Consciousness is a spectrum. I don't think it's a light switch. I don't think it's not there one minute and then all of a sudden it is. I think it's a process and it's all about how every moment and every action opens up something new. You know, there's that moment where the man in black says to Lawrence, no choice you ever made was your own. You've always been a prisoner. What if I told you I'm here to set you free? Now, in that moment, that's part of like a bit that they're right. playing out so that they can sneak into the jail and eventually free Hector, who handsome as ever. <laughs> But he's saying something that he means there. Right. He's saying something that he believes is true. And yet, why did he become this? Why did William turn into the man in black? It's all about his relationship with not only Westworld the Park and himself, not only Logan, specifically with Dolores and how that all goes. We'll talk about that more next yeah. week. But does he actually mean what he's saying there? Because on the one hand, it's an excuse for himself and his own failures. Well, if Dolores can't make her own choices, if she's just doing what someone else is telling her, then nothing that happened is really my fault. It was always going to play out that way. Spending three decades of his life here, devoting more time and money, falling deeper into the abyss of everything happening around him, has to indicate on some level that he doesn't believe that and that he does think that these beings are conscious because if they weren't, why would he care about the things they did? It's a great question. Back to this question of realism. At what point are you willing to believe that this is a person? 
You know, at what point is the fidelity good enough that you would need to ask even though you know the answer. Right. It's also interesting, though, in terms of how the hosts think about themselves yeah. and their journey to consciousness because the pariah orgy scene includes a very freaky Dolores moment where in one of her many flashes where you as a viewer in that moment are not not really sure if she's flashing back to something that happened to her previously, if it's the bicameral mind right. kicking in, where she's like pulling a thread, pulling yep. a fiber in her arm, sort of opening herself up and... When she starts to think about herself as a machine, the mind fragments. Of course it does. So it's as much about the hosts and what they're able to opt into as it is about the guests and what they're able to believe in. And I think Lee Sizemore's whole assessment that people don't want that, what he says to Teresa, this place works because the guests know the hosts aren't real. I don't think that's true. I think Westworld works because people can convince themselves it's real. And then when they leave, they think they got away with it. I think there's something to that. People want to go outside the bounds of everyday morality and transgress in certain ways, but they also want to feel like that was part of something else. That's not part of my behavior. That's just another thing that I can shunt over here to the side because these aren't real people. Exactly. So what do you think the show is asking us to consider about the humans and the nature of their humanity? I think this is an important thing to consider because it is easy to watch Westworld and harp on the nature of consciousness and artificial intelligence as we just did, as we love to do. One of our favorite things about stories like this. But many of the main characters, certainly some of the most morally complex ones, Ford Mm -hmm. and William slash the man in black, Mm -hmm. they're actual people. And we watch them fall into darkness before our eyes. Why is that happening? You know, Logan says to William, I know you think you have a handle on what this is going to be. This is when they first show up. Guns and tits and all the mindless shit I usually enjoy. You know right away Logan's a <laughs> Logan's garbage, a garbage person. You have no idea. This place seduces everyone eventually. By the end, you're going to be begging me to stay because this place is the answer to that question you've been asking yourself. William says, what question? Logan responds, who you really are. And I can't fucking wait to meet that guy. It turns out for William, the answer to that question is, I'm a monster. I'm a truly dark human being. But so I love that idea that a show that is in theory a vessel for considering who the robots really are is also just as much a question about who the people are. Right. It's a power play, just like video games, violent video games, first-person shooters are power fantasies in and of themselves. We all want to feel powerful in a certain way, and the only way to truly get that jolt of feeling like you're powerful is to have power over something that looks like a human being, looks real, looks real enough that you could believe it. And that's what Westworld is about. When William is engaging in his orientation, and he says, I thought you couldn't get hurt here, and Angela... Greeter says, only the right amount. That's also an interesting idea. Like, if you don't, again, if you don't feel any pain, right. if then there it's are- a, Then it's a simulation. Right. If there are no, no stakes, stakes, how are you ever going to buy in at all? There's also this great moment. The Man in Black Teddy stuff is really some of the darkest, most nefarious. It's like a person with a pet that he abuses. It's awful. Yeah. Like, literally, the Man in Black turns Lawrence into a blood boy? <laughs> yeah, the boy. <laughs> For Teddy? <laughs> Extremely tough yeah. for Lawrence. And 
This is one of these moments where we're learning more about Teddy, but it's really more an insight into William and the Man in Black and how the Man in Black thinks about not only Westworld, but the nature of creation, the nature of life. He says, I never understood why they paired some of you off. He's talking about Teddy and Dolores. Seems cruel. And then I realized winning doesn't mean anything unless someone else loses, which means you're here to be the loser. Again, there's a very video gamey quality to that. We know Nolan, creator of the show, huge video game fan. Lots of uh, video game Easter eggs in this show. Talks about this a lot. But that idea, okay, why is the kid who gives the apple to the horse there? He's not there to fuck whores or kill people. In theory, for some people, Westworld was a way to transport themselves. We don't know where Westworld is. We don't know when Westworld is. Crucial to say that. It's to transport yourself fully to a different time and way of life. But for the man in black, and I think it's fair to ask maybe for anybody who stays in this kind of world long enough, is it about winning and watching someone else crumble before you? I'm glad you brought up the kid because one of the things about Westworld that has me thinking so much and so deeply about the show is... What would need to happen to society at large for this to be an acceptable way to spend your time? Mm-hmm. To go to essentially like a theme park and rape and kill and murder wantonly these quote unquote robots. That's one. That's level one. Level two to that is what kind of society do we have when not only is that a socially accepted pastime, but people bring their kids there. Right. And yes, the other side of the river is the more adult side of the river. It's still you're bringing kids to Westworld and everyone would understand what that means. Sure. Westworld or the Delos parks would become, you would imagine, a shorthand for a kind of like artificial depravity, cutting loose this kind of like wild and wanted and violent Las Vegas simulation. And it would seem that it would be extremely weird to bring kids there. Yeah, well, there's that... We get hints in the first half of the season, no clarity, but hints about that bigger picture, about where Westworld fits into the larger scope of humanity and civilization. Teresa says to Lee, you're right. This place is one thing to the guests, another thing to shareholders, and something completely different to management. And then goes on to say, you're smart enough to guess there's a bigger picture, but not smart enough to see what it is. So we're led to believe, at least, that not everybody really understands even what is happening here, what the scope is, what the intent is. And that's kind of one game, is what is this corporation even up to? What are they after? There's what Arnold wanted, there's what Ford is chasing now, and there's what the corporation is chasing. And then there's the game that's the maze and what that represents. And again, we'll save like a lot of that specificity for the next episode, but in terms of how it's hinted at and sort of talked about in this longing way in the first half of season one, we have a couple moments where we learn about it. Arnold says to Dolores, It's called The Maze. It's a very special kind of game, Dolores. The goal is to find the center of it. If you can do that, then maybe you can be free. She says, I think I want to be free. Okay, so there's something here about freedom and about humanity and about what The Maze does to people. The Man in Black, well, he thinks he's seen everything here. He's done everything here. And this is the last thing, the final page. This is what's eluding him. Now, why does it matter? Is it, again, like we were just saying, is it about winning? Is it just about conquering something fully? Or... Is it about what he thinks this will tell him about life, about who he is and about what this place has made him? And he says, the whole world is a story. I've read every page except the last one. I need to find out how it ends. I want to know what this all means. And part of what makes The Man in Black's 
relationship to Westworld so fascinating is this idea that you can't be hurt, or at least you can't die. He's talking to Snake Tat Lady about Arnold. He created a world where you could do anything you wanted except one thing. You can't die, which means no matter how real this world seems, it's still just a game. Okay, so that is it. The ultimate stake is life and death. Right. And if that's not on the table here, then can you actually ever fool yourself if you're a person, if you're a guest, into thinking it's real? Well, this guy chose to spend 30 years here to answer that question. And I think at the end of this, he's going to discover that the stakes have to elevate to life and death. But the question is whose? We'll talk about that more next week. Jason? Yes. When the legend becomes fact. That's right. You print the legend. Print media still alive in the world of Westworld. (laughs) But we need facts right right now. So give them to us. Please assemble the conclave. Head to the Citadel down in Ford's study to teach us everything we need to know about psychologist Julian James's theory of bicameralism and its influence on Westworld. In The Stray, third episode of season one of Westworld, Ford tells Bernard, Bernard <laughs> about his deceased creative partner, Arnold, deceased, and Arnold's quest to create machine consciousness. He based it on a theory of consciousness called the bicameral mind, Ford says, the idea that primitive man believed his thoughts to be the voice of the gods. I thought it was debunked, Bernard says, as a theory for understanding the human mind, perhaps, but not as a blueprint for an artificial one. So what is bicameralism? 40 years ago, psychologist Julian Jaynes published The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, a landmark book that proposed a scientific basis for the hearing of divine voices. Jaynes argues that roughly 3,000 years ago, the human brain was composed of two distinct chambers, one that dealt with language and another that used resources from other parts of the brain to, quote unquote, speak to us. These inner dialogues, which were just your own inner voices, were perceived as coming from outside of the body, outside of the mind, from sources divine, just as in more primitive times, we imagine that humans must have thought of thunder as an expression of angry gods. In Jane's telling, it was the evolutionary growth of nerves connecting the two chambers spurred by the use and increasing importance in human society of metaphor that laid the structural groundwork for modern consciousness, which was, quote unquote, invented by the ancient Greeks. Jane's points to the appearance of introspection in the Odyssey, which contains various scenes in which Odysseus reflects on events, plans for the future, wondering how he's ever going to get back home to his wife, as evidence that a new kind of consciousness was developing. Jane cites the Iliad, which Jane's and others at the time thought had been written some centuries before, but it turns out that we are pretty sure they were written contemporaneously, and passages in which Achilles is told by various gods to go into battle or not, or do this or do that, as evidence that the divine was at that time, our inner monologue. The origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind was hugely influential in the years following its 1976 release. The book was shouted out by known weirdo Philip K. Dick and iconic musician David Bowie, among others. 70s were weird, guys. But as Bernard and Ford note, experts in the field have since moved on from James's hypothesis. From a biological standpoint, a couple of thousand years between the Iliad and, say, James Joyce's Ulysses is not really enough time for nature to radically restructure the brain. And contemporary neurological thought posits many other reasons that humans might hear celestial voices. Clearly, though, Nolan Joy intend for bicameralism to be the method by which Dolores and our hosts become self-aware. And if that's the case, and we think it is, the voice of Arnold that they hear telling them to do stuff, telling them to do this and that, and kill and take the gun, etc., that voice is actually their own. 
The By Carol Mind is also the title of the season one finale. Foreshadowing for next week's binge mode. That's right. Now, sometimes I feel like something's calling me, telling me there's a place for somewhere beyond all this. And that place is a message board full of other fans and theorizers. So let's head to the Reddit sept to bathe in the light of the seven by shivering savor and of our favorite ways that the Westworld showrunners have stoked the flames of internet theorizing. I will go first. Just to clarify yes. here for a minute. We're not just doing like clues and Easter eggs. Because no. that list would be 300 items long. That's right. This That's is just, a different thing. Yes. This is just a few of our favorite clear, this is a wink from the creators yes. that we know you guys are going to watch the show this way and we want to let you do that. Yes. It's a meta commentary because Nolan and Joy clearly understand the culture that has evolved around television and fiction based on the internet in the years since Lost really started this whole like mode of watching television. And they absolutely prod that process, stoke that process, and are very playful with the way they engage with that process. One of those, number one, the piano songs. Various piano songs, pop songs, Black Hole Sun by Soundgarden, Paint It Black, This World, No Surprises, that you can find all these on Spotify and various other places. A lot of Radiohead. A lot of Radiohead. A lot of winks to a lot of different sources. And just in the song titles, they give you this kind of, we know that you're watching, we know that you're looking at this, and we know that you're going to wonder what this means. That's why we're putting it in there. It's also a, a very clear Kurt Vonnegut player piano. Yes. Nod. Yeah. Which, of course, is about automation, among other things. Shouts to Vonnegut. Shouts to Vonnegut. Always shouts to Vonnegut. Number two, the Discover Westworld website. Boy, is this a rich text. Again, they didn't have to make this website. This exists because the creators, the people who are involved with this property, understand that the people who are watching Westworld are going to want to explore this and are going to want to find everything that they possibly can. Here are just a few of the things. There's so many. There are tons, but just a few of the things that await if you choose to poke around or that have been there at some point in time. There's this message, this desperate message from someone who's trapped inside the park. These like SOS, please help me, please. Six different parks listed on the Delos destination site. So this is again like a clue about maybe the scope of this world. There's another clue about that in the finale that we'll talk about next week. There's a glitch message if you hit your shift key where code is flashing, messages are flashing. You can hear Peter saying, you should go, leave, can't you see? Hell is empty and all the devils are here. There's a chatbot and if you ask him about Arnold, the chatbot will say, he and we hosts had a special connection. Ah, interesting. There is a terms of Delos destinations that includes some hidden information about how the park works. And one of the things on there is information about actual deaths in the park. Mm -hmm. Notable. If you type in the code word violent delights, it will port you to basically what is a mirror, like a mimic of the Delos employees back end. So you can in theory see what they'd be seeing on their screens. There's a map of the offices. Very important. There is also uh, terms of conditions. There's a map, and it says, one of the things it says is that if a guest is found to break any rules, Delos can, quote, 
take any and all corrective action, including contacting local authorities on the mainland. mainland. Why is this important? Because we, again, we don't know where Westworld is. Right. A lot of speculating. Is it is it on the moon? Is it another planet? Well, language like that, mainland, maybe an island, of course, who created the original Westworld movie, Michael Crichton, where was Jurassic Park, an island. Okay. There's an email, if you go through some of these prompts on the website, that invites you to plan your trip to Westworld. And one of the questions that you get in this email is, you were in a car accident, and unfortunately, there's nothing left in the wreckage. Luckily, you planned ahead and had your entire anatomy measured and mapped and all of your memories logged and saved. An exact replica is constructed from all of the information. Is this you? This is on a website that you then sign up for an email that you then go into the email and fill out a questionnaire. All of this is about the show. Like those degrees of engagement with theorizing and speculating about what the story is about. Very cool. Plenty of other examples. Number three, Easter egg references to Bioshock and Fallout 4. I'm sure there are other video game references in there. But when Bernard and Ford are talking in Ford's office, the camera pans and you see that uh, Ford has various trinkets and things from the evolution of the hosts to their current form. And one of those is a head that looks just like Sander Cohen from the first Bioshock game. A game, by the way, that Jonathan Nolan has said is an inspiration yes. for Westworld. And then there's a bunch of references to various things from Fallout 4. Great series. Fallout 3, my favorite of the series. Fallout 4 is also very good. I guess the most obvious one would be the Abernathy Farm mission, which involves helping this family that was kind of beset by various raiders in Fallout. Very cool stuff. Number four, the homie Yule Brenner hanging out. Yule Brenner. In deep storage. So, this is in episode six. Technically, we maybe shouldn't talk about it today, but again, we're taking the full season mm -hmm. into account. And it's notable here thematically in terms of this idea of kind of prodding the audience to ask questions and speculate. This show, Westworld, is inspired by the 1973 film of the same name. But crucially, these properties do not share characters, which is why yes. it was a big deal when Yul Brynner, who in the film played the primary antagonist. Right. The man in black, robot man in black. Right, that is, robot right. gunslinger who basically becomes infected with, a, in essence, a computer virus and starts killing guests. Big deal. When that guy was spotted in season one, it's a great Easter egg for a few reasons. The showrunners knew, of course, that people would spot him. He is standing in his kind of iconic signature pose. Right. He's behind Bernard. You see him behind Bernard, which is interesting. They knew that people would spot this and they would speculate not only yeah. about what it meant for Bernard's arc, but for the show's arc as a whole and that fans would go nuts debating, was there any chance right. that the film and the show could exist in the same continuity, in the same universe? Is this just a fun nod to the source material and to the idea of Easter eggs? And again, a meta commentary on fandom and on the quest for any breadcrumb, no matter how tiny. Is it more just made to get us as viewers to think about certain themes and certain character arcs and certain questions about where this story was going? Number five, the multiple timelines and the many William Man in Black hints. We'll get more in-depth about this in our next week's episode, but that stuff was so fun at the time. Like, oh, look, this lobby is an earlier version of the lobby that we see now that's flooded and it's not in use, and like, and the train is different, and then the, the room that they enter is somewhat different. There's a lot of those little Easter eggs, and like I said, we'll talk about that in more detail next week. Number six, 
Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. The passage that Arnold, Bernard has Dolores read includes some snippets from the following. How queer everything is today, and yesterday things went on just as usual. I wonder if I've been changed in the night. Let me think. Was I the same as when I got up this morning? I almost think I can remember feeling a little different. But if I'm not the same, the next question is, who in the world am I? Notable for a couple reasons. There are a lot of Alice references and nods in the first half of season one. Some of them are really overt. Dolores' hair, her blue dress, she is physically made in a lot of ways to resemble Alice. There is, again, having her literally read from the story, the themes that that story explores and the parallels between Westworld and Alice, reliance on dreams, these puzzling questions about the nature of reality. We also get this moment where Bernard mentions reading this story to his son. How do we perceive reality? What is the constant reference or the recurring reference to Alice supposed to make us think about how we think about reality? And then this is a really fun one. That passage is the same one that Jack reads to Claire's son, Aaron, (laughs) on Lost. Nodding to Lost is flat out akin to saying, we want you guys to go. That's how it all started. To speculate as freely as you can, to go deep on Reddit, to find your Doc Jensen for Westworld and have as much fun as you possibly can asking yourselves if every single word choice and visual and reference and nod possibly means something. Number seven, Nolan enjoys Reddit, AMA, and Rickroll. So Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy had a Reddit AMA, and in there they said, hey guys, we're going to fight spoilers by essentially giving you all the twists and turns of Westworld as long as this thread gets a certain number of upvotes, which they then did. Then they released a video, and the video, it showed Bernard you know, waking up on a beach, walking up, and then it turned out to be an elaborate Rickroll in which a dog sits at a piano and the piano plays uh, Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. That is... Special stuff. Special stuff. And clearly they know their audience. Jason. Yes. My father told me to be satisfied with my lot in life, that the whole world owed me nothing. And so I made my own world right here with you on binge mode. (laughs) Every week, we're going to honor the person or idea that compelled us the most. And this week, we are awarding our champion's purse paid out in Delo stock to Dr. Robert Ford. Listen, he created the entire world, guys. Anthony Hopkins really just... Created the entire world. He can like, control every animal and person in it with like a gesture. Has created a vast new narrative. Implemented code that he just like hijacked and put into a regular Delos update without telling anyone that basically created this viral consciousness that is quickly rippling throughout his system. Dr. Robert Ford also like dunked on everyone. Teresa, don't fuck with me. Sizemore. Yeah, that's a great narrative. It's terrible. Guess what? I'm going to do it now. Get out of here. The board. Guess what? They already agree with me. I don't care what any of you say. Very tough for any actor ever to have to go toe to toe with Anthony Hopkins. So incorporating that same notion into the character just just works extremely well. You don't know through five episodes 
whether you should be rooting for this person, whether you can trust this person, but you know that he's somebody to fear. And more importantly, to take extremely seriously. And in a show that is kind of by design disorienting, and keeps you off balance and obscures the true nature of the characters and masks their intent and their very nature. This is one of the few people where you're like, I got to know what this guy is up to. I just have to. And whether it ends up being good or whether it ends up being bad, I know that it's going to be important. I know that it's going to matter. He has that great line to Bernard, says, you can't play God without being acquainted with the devil. What you and I do is so complicated. We practice witchcraft. We say the right words and create life itself out of chaos. He is, in many ways, completely tormented by the past and yet maintains this laser focus on the future. He has a robot version of himself as a child. <laughs> Again, that's a good example of like subtle clues. You know, both of them wearing a vest, right. for example. The way he talks about the dog, I don't like to think about this because this dog killed a cat and it makes me upset, but the way he talked about the dog, never saw a thing as beautiful as that old dog running. And then he says, that dog had spent its whole life trying to catch that thing. Now it had no idea what to do. That's a real commentary on his own situation, on what Arnold's situation was. What happens when you devote your entire life to something and then you actually achieve it? Then what? Well, then you let the robots kill you. Spoiler. (laughs) I think the most haunting moment in the first half of the season is the Ford-Dolores exchange where she says, are we very old friends? Yes. And he says, do your best Hopkins voice here. No, I wouldn't say friends, Dolores. I wouldn't say that at all. And then he cries. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. All right, guys. Well, very old friends. Well, very old friends. We think there's a deeper meaning hidden behind all of this. Something the people who created it wanted to express. Something true. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today. And that you are as excited as we are for Binge Mode, Harry Potter, and Count of Thrones later this spring. And that you will join us next week for part two of our season one Westworld binge. When we will be discussing episodes six through ten ahead of the season two premiere. Until then, remember, they say the water's so pure there it'll wash the past clear off you. And you can start again. That place is binge mode. We sell complete immersion in a hundred interconnected narratives. A relentless fucking experience. Now you put one character, the overall story adjusts. You put 200 at once, it's a fucking disaster. I mean, what do you propose we do? Close down? Issue fucking gift certificates?